name's Tom Virginia. I'm an alcoholic. All right, Tom. Anyone who wears a red cap needs to learn humility. <laughs> and I thought I would teach him a little bit last night. I'm an alcoholic and I'm a miracle, and this room is full of miracles. I'm a miracle because by the grace of God, which has come to me through the finest and most effective life-changing program on the face of the earth. I have not had a drink since July 20th of 1965, and I'm extremely grateful for that. Someone asked me tonight if I was nervous. I've been uh, riding the AA circuit, so to speak, for about 18 years, and uh, I'm always nervous. I recall when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, my hands were shaking, my palms were wet, and I was about to pee in my britches. And guess what? <laughs> it hasn't changed that much. I think we just experienced our first alcoholic uh, hurricane. I don't know if you noticed that. I, I watched Juan, and he reminded me of, of me a lot. Uh, hurricane Juan didn't know where he was going. And after he'd been there, he didn't know where he was being. He had been, and he kept showing up in the same place over and over and over, always where he wasn't wanted. And that's kind of like me. I've been studying nursery rhymes and fairy tales of late. Any of you pay any attention to the stuff that you read to your kids? Do you realize how many nursery rhymes and fairy tales are about alcoholics? And the people that they're married to? Here's the one, uh, little boy blue, come blow your horn. The sheep's in the meadow, the cow's in the corn. Where's the little boy who looks after the sheep? He's under the haystack, fast asleep. Sucker got drunk and passed out. <laughs> I love little Miss Tuffet. Little Miss Muffet sat on her tuffet, eating her curds and whey. Along came a spider and sat down beside her and frightened Miss Muffet away. The lady was in DTs. <laughs> it, you got to think about these things. <laughs> It takes great, great study and research and intelligence to, to understand fairy tales. It really does. There's a classic, the story of Chicken Little. It's one of my favorites. Chicken Little was running all over the countryside telling Ducky Lucky and Henny Penny and Turkey Lurkey that the sky was falling. Sounds to me like the wife of an alcoholic hadn't been to Al-Anon yet. <laughs> And after she goes to Al-Anon, it's like little Bo Peep has lost her sheep and doesn't know where to find them. Leave them alone and they'll come home wagging their tails behind them. <laughs> I'm going to try tonight to uh, share with you, not talk at you, not speak for you, uh, but to share with you. And I only have one thing to share, and that is me. And my experience as an alcoholic, all of it, that I can possibly share. I want to tell you, in effect, about my life and about my death and about my rebirth, because this is a program of rebirth. And I want to talk with you about my regeneration, being made all over again, in spite of me, most of the time. The fantastic program. I think sometimes we don't appreciate the depth of this program quite enough. 
I'm an alcoholic that members of Alcoholics Anonymous gave up on, as you will hear as I tell you my story. I'm an alcoholic that everyone gave up on. I'm an alcoholic that was considered not only alcoholically insane, but clinically insane and was diagnosed as such. But I'm here, and I ain't drinking no liquor, and I haven't had any in a long time, and I kind of like it. I like this deal called sobriety, which to me means I am being high on life. I have found a way to feel good naturally. No bad side effects, no bad after effects, no hangover, no puking. Just being happy and joyous and free. In spite of difficulties, in spite of problems, in spite of the pain of living. How to be high on life. I like it. I think it's great. I don't talk much about drinking. I think drinking has very little to do with alcoholism. I agree with the big book that my liquor is but a symptom. And what I like to talk about when I share is the causes and conditions that the book says we have to get down to. Those things that made me the kind of person that I was. I believe that an alcoholic is an alcoholic like a rose is a rose. We're all different. Every one of us. In this room tonight, there are people of all ages, people of different sexes, different religious backgrounds, educational backgrounds, different social standing, different ages. All these things are different, and each one of us is an individual and unique externally. But I believe alcoholism is an inside kind of an illness. It is a soul sickness, as far as I'm concerned, of the first degree. It consumes the whole person mainly the inside. And I've talked to many alcoholics since I've been in the program. And once we get away from external differences about how much we drank and when we drank and how old we are and all these other things, we're so much alike it's incredible on the inside. And so I want to talk about the inside tonight. I want to share with you mine and see if you can identify because identification is one of the strengths of this program. I suffer from an eye illness, an illness that isolated and separated me from you, an illness that made me lonely all of the time, that made me feel different. And now I belong to a program, and the first word in our big book in the forward is the magic word, we. We. An eye illness and a we solution. That's what the program's about to me. So I want to share with you my insides and see what you can come up with. If you can identify, that's good. I'm an idealist. I was born into this world knowing how this world ought to be. I knew how the people in it ought to be, and I knew how I ought to be. And you weren't what you ought to be, and the world wasn't what it ought to be, and I, least of all, was what I ought to be. I spent 30 years of my life trying so hard to be what I thought I ought to be, I did not have time to be. Ought to is a bad word. I don't use it very often, and supposed to and should and things like that. These words are disappearing from my vocabulary. I was a driven person because of my idealism. I'm a perfectionist. I didn't say was, I said am. 
And by perfectionist, I mean that everything had to be just right, just the way I wanted it at any given time, or I got upset. I mean by perfectionist that I'm a congenital nitpicker. Can any of you identify with that? If someone's just cleaned up a house, I'll walk in the house and without even seeking it, will find the one spot they missed. I was in my dentist's office not long ago, and I realized I was straightening up his magazines. <laughs> not just stacking them up even, I had them by titles and dates and everything. <laughs> Can't stand a crooked picture on the wall. Cannot stand it. Got to straighten it out. I tried. I tried. I can make it for about 30 seconds, and I just cannot stand it anymore. And as a perfectionist, uh, I always had to be on top. I had to be number one. Everything I ever did, I had to do it better and quicker than anyone else had ever done it. I went right for the top, the spotlight, the approval, the control. And in my own mind, when I wasn't the best, I was automatically the worst. That's perfectionism. I still am one. I have to deal with it every single day. I'm also a hypersensitive human being. Any of you know what that means? You're laughing. What are you laughing at? It means I get my feelings hurt real easy. It means don't criticize me at all. But don't praise me either. Because if you criticize, you've said too much, and if you praise, you've never said enough. There's no winning with people like that. I walked around with my feelings sticking out in all directions, and God help you if you stepped on them. But if no one stepped on my feelings, I'd go find somebody who would do it. I heard a psychiatrist not long ago. In my work, I have to do with psychiatrists now. They're important, Jim. I'm not. And I heard one of them refer to alcoholics as stimulus augmenters. Bet you didn't know you had that. And, you know, if I'm going to have an illness, I, I want it to be important, and stimulus augmenter sounds damned important. And so I went up to this doctor, and I said, Stan, tell me, what is a stimulus augmenter? He said, it's a person like you that makes mountains out of molehills feels things much more deeply than he should. I said, you can hush now, Stan. You've said enough. <laughs> I try to pick up on the big words from these shrinks, you know, and another one said, and I heard her, you know, said, alcoholics have a lot of cognitive dissonance. Said, wow, that's something. That's important. So I went up and asked her, would you tell me, please, what cognitive dissonance is? She said, it's a person like you. It's always thinking what they don't want to think. Can't ever think what they do want to think. <laughs> always doing what they don't want to do. Can't ever do what they do want to do. I said, you have said enough, too. <laughs> then in the back of the big book, AA Comes of Age, Dr. Harry Tebow, who was also a shrink, made this statement. Characteristic of a so-called typical alcoholic is a narcissistic egocentric core dominated by feelings of omnipotence, intent at all costs on maintaining its own inner integrity. How you like that? <laughs> that's important. It really is. You know, if you have a family member that's bugging you about your alcoholism and they ask you that very serious question like, uh, what is the matter with you? Tell them I'm a stim stimulus augmenter with lots of cognitive dissonance. 
I have this narcissistic, egocentric core dominated by feelings of omnipotence. <laughs> and don't you ever upset me again. <laughs> and I'm a romantic. Any of you alcoholics out there romantics? I dreamed a lot. I fantasized a lot, too. We haven't got time for that. <laughs> I was always sitting around dreaming, dreaming what I was going to be when I grew up. Last time I did it was about 30 minutes ago. <laughs> and I was always dreaming, and it went like this. Why couldn't I be someone else, somewhere else, doing something else with somebody else? Why do I have to be here now with them doing this? <laughs> and I used to read books, you know. And I, I, I read about the Knights of the Round Table. And the guy that struck me the most, of course, was Sir Galahad. And he rode a white charger and carried a lance, you know, and he'd ride up to the castle, and a beautiful maiden would put a kerchief on the end of the lance, and he'd ride off and kill dragons. And I'd think to myself, why couldn't I be Sir Galahad? Even my dreams didn't work. I knew what I'd do in my pants the first dragon I ever saw. <laughs> and I loved atmosphere and music. It's incredible the number of times I got drunk on atmosphere. I ain't going in there to drink. I'm just going for the atmosphere. I'm not going in there for the, to drink. I'm going for the music. <laughs> And I don't agree with the poet that a tree is the most beautiful thing God ever made. I think women are. <laughs> and I love them. I love beautiful women, attractive women, mediocre women, <laughs> and ugly women. <laughs> I woke up with women looked like they'd been dead for a year. <laughs> I said that down in Texas not long ago. Old Texas boy come up to me and said, You must have been with a gal that was coyote ugly. I said, What that mean? He said, It means you chew your arm off before you touch her. <laughs> Suffice it to say, there were many mornings when I came to and I had two reasons to puke. <laughs> but the night, the night before and all that atmosphere with all that music, she was one of God's loveliest creatures. <laughs> and I love sad music. <laughs> Never met an alcoholic that didn't like sad music. I, uh, every one of us has got a song. And I used to get my bottle and my stereo and my song, my record, and sit down with the express purpose of crying. <laughs> now, if you like country and western, you know, you pick up on some Hank Williams. You hear that lonesome whippoorwill. <laughs> he sounds too blue to cry. Fly. Midnight train is winding low. I'm so lonesome. I could cry, and I would. 
<laughs> well, get the dirty blues, low down dirty blues, get muddy waters on there, you know, let him hit the cord on the guitar. And he said, there's one thing, baby, I can't understand. Why you can't be satisfied with just one man? <laughs> tell me, baby, and tell me true. How can you love me and my best friend, too? <laughs> I'd rather drink muddy water, sleep in a hollow log. By God, I'd cry again. <laughs> but the one song that I listened to was a thing by the Four Freshmen. Some of y'all are not old enough to remember the Four Freshmen. Really beautiful harmony. I still love them. And there was this one song, this thing, saddest thing I ever heard in my life. It was called, Their Hearts Were Full of Spring. <laughs> There's a story told of a very gentle boy and a girl who wore his ring. Through the winter snow, their love remained still warm, for their hearts were full of spring. Isn't that pretty? As the days hurried by and the weeks passed into time and the months and years took wing, gentle boy, lovely girl, their love remained still warm, for their hearts were full of spring. And that was all a setup for the chorus. Real crying time. Then one day they died. And their graves lay side by side on a hill where robins sing. And they say violets grow there the whole year round, for their hearts were full of spring. And I'd cry, <laughs> take another drink, and start that song over again. <laughs> You know, when I was nine years sober, I found that old record, and I started for the stereo with it, and my wife saw it and said, don't you play that thing. <laughs> she almost went into hysterics, and I was a little nervous, but I feel things deeply, and I dream a lot. You miss a lot of life by dreaming. I heard a story a long time ago about two winos. Any winos and winettes in here? <laughs> old story Old fellow damn Jack Jack down in Texas uh, Told a story about these two winos That shook two under a bridge one day Then one wino turned to the other one And said I had the best dream I ever had in my life last night He said well what'd you dream He said I dreamed my mama called me home Gave me $25 Told me to go spend the whole day at Disneyland And the other wino said you go He said yeah I went I had a wonderful time Best time I ever had in my life Rode all the rides, went to all the shows, looked at all the pretty girls. He said, well, I met Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and Goofy personally. And the other wino says, that ain't nothing. I got a better story than that. I had a better dream than that. He said, oh, yeah, what'd you dream? He said, man, I dreamed I had a luxury apartment, two cases of Jack Daniels. So there came a knock on my door, and the two most beautiful girls you ever saw in your life came through the door and started taking their clothes off. And the other wino was caught up in his story, and he said, why didn't you call me? <laughs> he said, I did, but your mama said you'd gone to Disneyland. <laughs> as far back in my life as I can remember... I was afraid, and I felt like a failure. I was raised in a mill town down in North Carolina. Work was the thing that you did. Education was the thing that you got. That was my parents' dream for me. I was raised by parents of a fundamentalist religion. 
I was raised by a mother who would have breathed for me if she could. I never existed as a person for my mother. I was an extension of her. I love her to death, but this is the truth. I never seemed to do well enough. I made straight A's in school, but I always got the message, A's are nice, but where are the A pluses? Everything I did in life, it seemed to try to gain people's approval. I was almost there, and I thought I had arrived, but they gave me the message, there's more. And I became very early aware that I was failing. No matter what I did, I was always that close. I never seemed to measure up to what people expected of me. I couldn't do it. And so I started pretending. The biggest form of lying I ever did in my life was to pretend to be something that I was not. Whatever you wanted to me, me to be, I would be it. It's like Heather said this morning, I changed many colors. I was like a rock lizard. Whatever color you wanted, that's what you got. Whatever you wanted me to be, I would be. I would do anything so I'd feel that warmth of success for just a few minutes. Success always coming from someone else's approval, never coming from inside myself. Inside, I believed I was a bad person, I was worthless, I was unlovable, and I was a failure, and I believed that very young. And I had a lot of things to be afraid about, too. I was the ugliest baby you ever saw. <laughs> Truly. My own mother told me she had never seen an ugly baby until I was born. I told a psychiatrist that one time. I love shrinks. You know what he said? He said, ooh. Ooh, he said, that must have been traumatic for you. <laughs> traumatic means, I guess, it hurt your feelings, you know. I said, no, sir, it wasn't traumatic. I've seen my baby pictures. <laughs> And I was ugly. And as I grew up, things didn't get much better. See, I always wanted to be a macho man. Any of you guys want to be a macho man? You know, big and strong, manly and courageous and smart. That's what I wanted to be. And my daddy had lots of brothers. Then the days before TV, and there's about 14 of them in his family. You know how that goes. And they were big and macho. And my mom had four of the biggest macho brothers you ever saw in your life. And the one that I really latched on to as my idol was my Uncle Dud. Now, my Uncle Dud was a motorcycle cop back in the days when they wore riding breeches and leather spats up to their knees. And he had a harness across here with silver bullets in it. And high on his hips at a pearl-handled police special 38. And he smelled like gunpowder and shaving lotion, and he squeaked when he walked. You know what I mean? My God, that's macho. And that's what I wanted to be like was my Uncle Dud. I never felt comfortable and unafraid, by the way, unless I was riding behind Dud on his motorcycle. Then I felt secure. And as I grew, nature didn't like me. I was skinny. I was real skinny. I was one of those little boys that turned sideways and the shoulder blades stuck out like a tricycle handlebar. <laughs> and my mama made me wear knickers. When your leg's that big and the knicker hole's that big, you got problems. <laughs> and there was always corduroy knickers and there was always brown corduroy knickers. And I grew this great shock of snow white hair. Wasn't blonde, snow white. 
You know what all my macho uncles call me? Pudding head. <laughs> you try being macho when people calling you pudding head. <laughs> Even when I was 18, my nickname was Sweet Lips. <laughs> and if that wasn't enough, I had these freckles. Now, don't get me wrong, I love freckles. On other people. <laughs> I was a sight. I had freckles from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. I had freckles where you ain't supposed to have no freckles. <laughs> and I hated them. And I looked at me, and I didn't even measure up to my own standards. I mean, when you're skinny with freckles and cotton top and pudding heads, you know... <laughs> You sure ain't macho. I don't know whatever else you are. And that frightened me a little more. And I used to say to myself, it's the freckles. If I can ever get rid of these freckles, everything will be all right. And you know, about the age of 12 or 13, those freckles replaced the most beautiful set of pimples you ever saw in your life. Now, my mom and dad came from the old school, and they used to tell me if you did certain things, you get pimples on your face. <laughs> I used to say I didn't do those things. It's one of the few things I excelled at. <laughs> Now, I'm already scared, and I'm already feeling like a failure, and I walk down the street. People look at them pimples like I got a neon sign over my head saying, he's doing it, he's doing it, he's doing it. <laughs> I couldn't even be like other kids with my pimples. Other kids had acne. Mine was called acne vulgaris. <laughs> that means ugly I ain't had x-ray treatments on my face It was that bad I had cysts and balls Everybody else had little old pimples You know, I'm different <laughs> Hated them Go in and take my father's razor And shave off the side of my face Literally Hated me <laughs> Walked around the first 15 years of my life feeling totally empty inside myself. Like my friend Johnny from California says, it was like I had a hole in the middle of me and the wind was blowing through it, and it hurt. God, it hurt. And I saw the people around me, and they had holes in their middles, and some of them went to church, and, and the hole closed for them. And some of them got educated, and the hole closed for them. I went to church, mine got bigger. I got educated, mine got bigger. Other people fell in love and the hole closed. I fell in love and fell in love and fell in love and fell in love. It got bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> Nothing that worked for anyone else seemed to work for me. And I hurt. When I was 15 years old, I was in a hotel, Greensboro, North Carolina. We're on a high school singing festival that we have down in the Carolinas. And I was with some older, more experienced men of 17, 18 years old. 
these fellows had been around. And they called the cab driver and gave him seven dollars and a half, and after a while he came back to the door of that hotel room and had a bottle of brown liquid in his hand. The label on it said, Cream of Kentucky. I'll never forget that. And I said to the wisest of my friends, whose name was Egghead Baker. <laughs> That's the truth, y'all. I said, Egghead, what do we do with this stuff? He said, Tommy, he said, you drink a water glass of that as fast as you can. You drink a glass of water as fast as you can. You keep on doing that, you're going to feel good. God knows I wanted to feel good. And I went in the bathroom and I watched myself take my first drink. I can remember that. And Egghead lied to me. Two drinks. The hole closed. Kind of important to me. I drank some more. All those other guys that night got sick and puked and passed out and silly things like that. I didn't. And when they were all passed out and laying in various positions around the room, I called the cab driver. I gave him seven and a half, and I got me a pint of cream of Kentucky. I found the answer. I found the thing that did for me what I'd always wanted done. Do you remember that time it did it for you? It was a solution to my problem, the answer to all my questions, capital S, capital A. And from that time forth, my alcoholism was set in motion because that very night I blacked out. And I became very, very preoccupied with this substance called alcohol. And that preoccupation was to become an obsession. I made straight A's in school. That stopped. I played sports. That stopped. I was social. That stopped. I was in clubs. That stopped. If there wasn't booze connected with what you were doing, I wanted no part of it. It completely took over my thinking, my life, and my behavior. And when I was 16 and 17, I was being locked up regularly in the Wake County Jail in my home. Never, ever remembering being locked up. I was getting into trouble. I was getting suspended from school. All kinds of things were happening. It was blackout drinking already. I get tickled sometimes to try to put an age limit on alcoholism. <laughs> As if you could measure pain by years. By the time I was 23, I'd had over a thousand stitches taken in my face alone as a result of drinking. Been in more jails than I could count. Hurt everyone in life that cared about me. Had been in hospitals, religious homes for alcoholics. That's a trip. And was deeply into my alcoholism. From the very beginning with my alcoholism, I didn't have the power to choose how much I was going to drink once I started drinking. From the very beginning. And a few years later, I didn't even have the power to choose when I was going to drink or not. It was gone. And I was deep into the alcoholic obsession. In between every two drunks, I'd be sick to death. I'd be too sick to get it down, too sick to get it up, too sick to die, and too sick to live. And I'd swear off, I'm never going to do this again. I don't want to do it this way. I'd say those ego words, never and forever. And I'd get feeling better physically. And I'd go back to the Baptist church and get all spiritual. 
And I'd start reading intellectual wordy books and get the mental organism working up here again. And as soon as everything got going good and everybody was off my back and everything was beautiful, a little monkey would jump up on my shoulder and say, Tom, this time it'll be different. This time, if you just handle it right, you're going to be able to drink successfully. And I'd drink myself right back to the john. You know what I mean? And it was a pattern. And it went on and on and on and on. I first went to Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 23 years old. I don't know why I went. But it became apparent to me right away this was going to be an easy thing to master, this AA business. I walked into my first meeting, and there's a guy standing up front with a blue book in front of him. He's talking, and on this side's a plaque. has 12 steps on it. On this side's a plaque. has 12 traditions on it. And my great mind went to work, and the great mind says, all you have to do is memorize those steps, memorize those traditions, memorize what's in that book, and they'll put you up front. And listen to you. Why, you'll be president of AA within six months. <laughs> so I set to work memorizing. I've been gifted or cursed with a photographic memory, whichever you choose. I was the greatest test taker in the world when I was going through college. I didn't learn anything, but I sure could take those tests. I carried a 3.94 average in college with majors in philosophy and history, minors in religion, Greek, and English. Soloist with the college choir founded the college dance band. Who's who among, among students in American universities and colleges my junior and senior year, the outstanding biblical student? I could list it right on down the line, and I was drunk 75% of the time. Courtesy photographic memory. People thought I was smart. I was shrewd. So shrewd, I damn near died. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I memorized. I was laughing when Heather was parroting Rarely have I seen a person fail to thoroughly fall out there. I can say it all. I can quote great portions of this book to you tonight. I don't have to anymore. But if you're ever in a big book discussion meeting with me, don't misquote it. <laughs> and sure enough, those kind people in AA put me up front and gave me the spotlight. And I delivered some of the windiest dissertations on theosophy and theology and epistemology and ontology and philosophy you've ever heard in your life. Really intellectual stuff. It wowed them. The only thing I couldn't do was stay sober. <laughs> For the next seven years, with all of this knowledge above the eyebrows about Alcoholics Anonymous, the longest I ever stayed dry was 89 days in seven years. And I knew everything there was to know in this program above the eyebrows. When this book says self-knowledge won't work, it's telling the truth. I know it from my experience. You don't have to learn it that way. I suffered more after I came into this program than I did before. Because right away when I got here, I knew it was the answer. I knew it was it. And I watched the turtles of life pass me by like they were riding motorcycles. Everybody come to the group, go to that switch that says sobriety and flip it on, you know, and stay sober right on. I was that close to the switch and I could not reach it. And I wasn't trying not to be sober, folks. I was trying to be sober. But I couldn't reach the switch. 
I went to a group up in Burlington, North Carolina. It was so traditional, everybody had a seat. You got groups like that up here? And you didn't sit in anybody's seat. You go in that meeting in Burlington, North Carolina tomorrow night. Barney will be leaned up against the wall on the left-hand side. Jim will be in the second chair, first row. Fourth row, fourth seat over from the wall is empty. Been empty a long time. That's Martha's seat. She's been dead 14 years. <laughs> and Freeman will be there, and Jimmy will be there. And over on the right-hand side, it's the man who's dead now. Second row, second chair from the wall, set this man, the meanest man that God ever made. His name was Bill C., and I called him Grumpy, and I hated his guts. And I hated his guts because he always told me the truth. He could see through me like Superman with X-ray vision. And I'd come to the meeting, and he always called me boy. And he always pointed his finger at me. And he talked in circles like some of these old-timers do, yet senseless stuff, talking in circles. I'd come in to meet, and he'd say, how you doing, boy? And I'd say, fine. Then he'd tell me how I really was. <laughs> and he talked in these circles like, boy, you don't think your way into good living. You live your way into good thinking. I'd say, shut up, you old dummy. Inside myself, didn't have the guts to say it to him. I'd go get drunk at him. <laughs> Boy, the good Lord gave you two ears and one mouth. Does that mean a damn thing to you? And the one I always hated the worst, and I treasure the most today. Boy, he'd say, how come you always run around looking for God? He ain't lost. <laughs> and during this period of time, I wanted one of those red poker chips that we give down in North Carolina for 90 days of sobriety. I wanted one so bad because it would make me somebody and I was tired of doing nothing. And I wanted one so bad that after the meeting was over and everybody was gone, I snuck up to the chip box and stole them red chips. I used to sit out in my den and meditate and read the great books by the great men of God. I read Augustine. I read Buber. I read Tillich. I read Thomas Kempis. I read St. John of the Cross. I read them all, sitting in the lotus position, waiting for my spiritual awakening to happen. <laughs> See, I'm a Baptist, folks. I know what a spiritual awakening is. <laughs> it's God lighting up a bush for Moses. That's what it is. It's God knocking Paul off a jackass, too. Has to be big. And I figured if he could light up a bush for Moses and knock Paul off a jackass, you know, least he could do was give me one lightning bolt. <laughs> God's got a great sense of humor. I can see him now looking over there saying, there's that dummy again. <laughs> I'd give him a lightning bolt. I got plenty. But he wouldn't like the color. <laughs> And I was marking off days on my calendar, and I had a red chip pasted up there on the 90th day, and boy, I was going to make it. I'd run home, go to bed real quick before I could get drunk. <laughs> 89 days, I stayed dry, and on the 90th day, I rested. <laughs> Grumpy.
Grumpy wasn't surprised at all. I used to call Grumpy when it was too late. I was a test pattern drunk. <laughs> I'd call you after I had the first drink, just in case I couldn't get you. I called Grumpy one night, and I was drunk. Before I could say a word, he said, Boy, don't you ever call me again, drunk. He said, matter of fact, don't you ever call me again. He said, if you, if you want to get sober, you know where we meet, and don't call me to come get you. You can walk. He said, frankly, Tom, I don't care if you ever get sober. That hurt my feelings real bad. And I bless him for it today. I bless him for it. He did me a big favor. I drank on until I was 30. I was on five years probation. I was never supposed to drive a car again in the state of North Carolina as long as I lived. I'd had the unique experience of driving my car under a tractor trailer while in a blackout, becoming medically addicted to morphine, going through withdrawal and traction, going from 225 to 140 pounds, being unable to walk for over a year. And the first thing I did when I was able to walk was I went out and got drunk. Only this time I took the medications along that the doctor was giving me for the pain I was having. I took Percodan and Seconal along with the bourbon now. And there wasn't enough liquor left in God's world to close the hole anymore. It was gaping. When I was 30 years old, I came to one morning. I was a young college teacher about to lose my job. And I came to in an empty apartment. My wife and daughter were gone. Nothing in there belonged to me. And I bless God for this day. Because when I woke up that morning, three ideas came into my mind just as clearly as I'm standing here tonight. And the first idea was, Tom, you can't drink. I had known that for a long time. And the second idea I had never even considered. And Tom, you can't quit. And I came to in an empty apartment. My wife and daughter were gone. Nothing in there belonged to me. And I bless God for this day. Because when I woke up that morning, three ideas came in my You can't drink and you can't quit drinking. And the third idea shook me. And you are going to die. And I knew it. I knew it. Now, I'd had experiences like this before. I'd had experiences in between every two drunks when I was real, real sick, when I saw the truth about myself and could not avoid it. And I made up my mind to change that situation. This time I made up my mind about nothing. This time I did the magic thing without even knowing I had done it. I surrendered. The book says we learned we had to concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. You want to guess how I got back there? I walked. I had no driver's license, and i got to tell you something here. My mind was telling me, AA won't work. You have tried that. It worked for everybody else. You're different. You're different. You're different. Don't go. Don't go. And at the same time, my feet were taking me right straight for that AA meeting. I'm a great believer in the body. 
I can argue with my mind. I can play games with my mind. But when my body gives me a message, it is going to be heard. When my body says sleep, I sleep. When my body says stop, I stop. And if I don't, I get sick and it stops me. And James Taylor, a North Carolina musician, writes a lot of good music. And there's a line in one of his songs that says, I guess my feet know where they want me to go. And mine did. And I kept walking to meeting. I went late and I left early. I didn't speak to anybody. But I kept going. After a while, I got to looking around the room. I saw this man there that I liked. What I liked about him was not him. What I liked about him was his eyes. They were alive and they were dancing. There was a brightness in them. And I went up to this man one night, kind of saddled up to him, and I said, I want to stay sober. And I said, will you be my sponsor? You know what he said to me? He said, boy. <laughs> boy, I've heard about you. They tell me you're crazy. But I'll sponsor you on one condition. I said, what's that? He said, we'll do it my way. Now, people have told me to do things their way before, and you got to guess what I told them. You know what I said this time? Yes, sir. Please. Now, he says, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to go to meetings early. And I want you to shake everybody's hand there, and I want you to ask them how they're doing. And I said, I don't want to go to meetings early. And I don't want to shake everybody's hand. And I don't care how they're doing. <laughs> and why do I have to do that? And he said, Tom, you don't ask me why. You do what I tell you to do. Now there, folks, is the difference in a sponsor and a counselor. <laughs> I have a message here, uh, Leslie White. Phone call in the kitchen. Okay. And what he told me to do, I did. And it didn't make a bit of sense to me. I figured he was going straight for the mind, you know, and change it. After all, my memory of the book told me the crux of the problem is in the mind. And I figured Harry was going to work on my mind. He didn't go work on my mind in the way that I thought he should, thank God. So I went to meetings early. And I shook people's hands. And I mumbled. I looked at shoe tops. You ever look at shoe tops? I looked at walls. I looked at ceilings. I looked anywhere except at people. I couldn't stand to look at people. And I mumbled to them. It must have been funny to everybody. It's hard for me to do. And after a few weeks, I was seeing some ankles. A few more weeks, I was seeing some shins. My words were clearing up a little bit. A few more weeks, I saw some knees, and then I saw some thighs, then I saw some hips, saw some beautiful hips. <laughs> and then the magic of AA happened. I was looking them in the eye. I did care how they were doing, and I was glad to see them, and I knew something, and God, this is the magic of AA. They were glad to see me. My God, I can't describe how important that was and is. I'm a toucher and a hugger today. I never touched and hugged anybody, anytime. Nobody got close to me. And how did my sponsor have the wisdom?
to start me touching from the first day. How? I think it's because sponsors ain't in this deal alone. Man, I started getting sober. I was sitting up at work one day, you know, <laughs> eating my bag lunch. All of a sudden, it dawned on me. Tom, you hadn't wanted to drink for over three months. Oh, God. I cried like a baby. When I got that three-month chip, you'd have thought I'd been sober 35 years. <laughs> Place went crazy. <laughs> got my six-month chip, and my sponsor called Grumpy and said, Come down, Tom's picking up a six-month chip. Grumpy says, You're a damn lie. Ain't no way he could stay sober six months. <laughs> he said, I'm about to die with the flu, but I'd go anywhere to see that. And he came down from a six, when I picked up my six-month chip, and time went on, and it went on, and it went on. And I was up for my year. And I was laying in on the bed laughing because my sponsor and my wife were arguing on the telephone about who was going to give me a party. <laughs> now, people had argued about me before, but it was always in terms of what we're going to do with him this time, you know? <laughs> and they're arguing about who's going to give me a party. I had a proper speech written. It was very deep and very profound. It was going to evoke a lot of tears out of them people at that meeting, you know? I really had it made. It was my night. The ego was back, and I didn't know it. They called me up, gave me a year chip, and I couldn't say a word. I was bawling like a baby. And if that wasn't enough, you think God don't take care of drunks and fools? They kept counting. And they counted up to 25 years. A little gray-haired man in the back of the room got up, came up, picked up a 25-year chip. I had chosen his anniversary in AA as mine. He's 24 years ahead of me today. He's been sober 44 years. He still allows me to call him my pigeon. Every time I talk to him, I say, keep on doing what I told you, pigeon. You're going to be okay. And he puts up with that stuff. And I love him. I love him to death. God, what a wonderful man. One of those men who has practiced this program so long, he doesn't have to talk about AA. He is AA. I get in his presence. I'm in AA. I am with God. I am close. Spirit all around him. And the beauty of the thing is, like all people of that kind, he doesn't even know it. He is so simple, it's incredible. Beautiful man. Some things have been getting good for me ever since. Now, I like the AA version of alcoholism. Do y'all like that? And as I run into people around, seems like the AA version is not being stressed a lot. And if you will, I'm going to stress it a little bit tonight. I'm an alcoholic. And that means in AA terms, I am allergic to alcohol. Now, what does that mean? I have to understand these things. I had to understand them as I was going through the program. I have to understand them now. To me, it's simply this. I'm allergic to penicillin. When I take penicillin, I break out in a rash all over. And I swell up and I get sore and I get short of breath. I'm allergic to alcohol. The first time I drank, I broke out drunk. The last time I drank, I broke out drunk. I swelled up all over. And the beauty of it is the researchers are backing it up 1,000%. Alcoholism, they say, is a biochemical genetic disorder. It is inherited. It is physiological. Alcoholics really cannot drink alcohol. 
And they give us these long terms about it to justify it. They say the liver won't metabolize alcohol. And a normal drinker, when the alcohol goes to the liver, it's broken down into a chemical called acetaldehyde, which is then further broken down into carbon dioxide and water in a normal drinker. And they pee it out and breathe it out. It's gone in a few hours. With the alcoholic, they say it's broken down to acetaldehyde, but it is not peed out and breathed out in a few hours. Most of it's retained, rises through the central nervous system, mixes, mixes with a neuro, neurotransmitter chemical in the brain called dopamine, and forms another compound called tetrahydroisoquinolone. Boggles your mind, doesn't it? <laughs> and when the tetrahydroisoquinolone is formed, do you know what you have in your brain? The first cousin to morphine. And the body says, get me some more of that stuff. No willpower will ever work here. No intention makes any difference here. Now the body is in control, and it demands more and more and more until it's saturated. Then it says stop, and we go through withdrawal. I got some good friends who are really intellectual researchers now, good men. And I was talking to one of them one night, and he was laying out all these 20-syllable words, you know. And I said, John, all you guys are going to sit around around the table one day, and you know what you're going to say to each other? He said, I don't know, Tom, what? I said, you're going to look at one another and smile and say, you know what? We believe alcoholics are allergic to alcohol. <laughs> and AA has the greatest solution in the world for that kind of physical condition. And the only remedy we have to suggest is complete abstinence. <laughs> you don't drink. But I have an obsession of the mind that drives me to drink. The mind is a fantastic thing. You ever stop to consider your own mind? Any of you read Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled? He says, the mind which presumes to believe there's no such thing as a miracle is itself a miracle. Little David, with whom I identify and wrote some of the Psalms in the Bible, said, I will praise thee, O Lord, for I am wonderfully and fearfully made. We are. The mind's hard to explain, but I had to understand it in little red hen terms. And to me, the mind goes this way. There's the first level of the mind, and it's called conscious. And it's run by a little guy called ego. And the conscious mind, with it I value, and I believe, and I feel, and I remember, and I perceive, and I think, and I choose. And the little ego has a job to do. And its job is to protect, to protect me from pain, and to protect the things that are very valuable to me by any means possible. And then there's a second level of the mind. It is called the basement. That's what I call it. If I have a basement in my house, that's where I put junk. So it is with the basement of my mind. That's where the ego puts junk. Thoughts, feelings, memories, it does not wish me to be conscious of. It shoves into the basement of my mind. The psychologists complicate it and say it does it by ego defense mechanism. This is fine with me but it is shoved into the basement of my mind if it is painful to me or if it contradicts something that I value. And the deepest level of the mind, I believe, is God within. The very deepest level of the mind, I believe, as is God within. It is the level of my mind that has knowledge. It's the level of my mind that has power. I love what Chuck used to say, may God rest his soul. I'm not saying I'm God, but he is me. 
and he's you, and you, and you, and infinitely more. And these are not our ideas. These are the ideas straight from the mouths of the spiritual teachers who told us that this power resides within us. And straight from our book, says deep down in, inside every man, woman, and child is a fundamental idea of God. We found the reality deep within us. In the final analysis, it's only there that he may be found. In God, it is said, we live and move and have our being. And I believe that he lives and moves and has his being in us and his other creation. And that boggles your mind. How can God be outside and God be inside at the same time? How can I move in him and him in me at the same time? You're sitting in a room now surrounded by air. The same air that surrounds you is breathed in and out of you. So it is, I believe, with God. I believe that God expresses himself through us. More than that, I believe that we are expressions of him. And this program brings us to the realization of that. And what happens in the mind, or what happened in mind at least, was this. Alcohol was very valuable to me. And the ego protected it by shoving all the bad memories about that last drunk, the bad feelings about that last drunk, the bad thoughts about alcohol into the basement of my mind. Hidden from view, unconscious. Problem. I know that when you bury thoughts and memories and feelings, you do not bury them dead, you bury them alive. And they ate at my gut, and I was restless and irritable and discontented. But I forgot. Because the material was shoved away in the basement of my mind, I forgot. On Friday, I would be sickened to death. I would be swearing off forever. I meant it. I would be going back to church. I would be going to AA. I would be doing everything. And on Monday, I wasn't too sure about the deal. I was feeling better. And by the next Friday, I was telling myself, it'll be different this time. How many times have you done that? And it's bad enough that I'm shoving all this material in the basement of my mind and causing an uproar inside of me. But the worst part, when I filled up my basement with this junk, I was cut off from the power within me. I had a lack of... I couldn't seem to recognize what was good for me and do it and what was bad for me and not do it. And to me, that's a definition, a pretty good one, of insanity. And what does the program do about this? In the old days, the old-timers used to talk about ego deflation at depth. The ego, they said, had become inflated. He was supposed to manage the conscient mind. He was acting like he was chairman of the board. Deflated. Look at the first three steps. The process of ego deflation. I've learned a lot in this program. I've learned a lot from my children. Do you ever listen to children? I do. Very closely. To me, children are much closer to God. They haven't walked so far away. It's no surprise to me that the spiritual teachers say we have to become like little children. And I got a kid at home. He's a big strapping boy now. Those of you who've heard me through the years have heard me talk about Jason. And when Jason was a little baby, You've heard of armchair philosophers. Well, he was a potty chair philosopher. When he sat on his potty chair, he wanted somebody to sit with him and listen to him and talk to him. And I got the job one night. And I'm sitting there, and here this tiny little boy looks up at me and out of nowhere and says, Hey, Dad, 
Jesus turns the power on. Whoa. And it's not Jesus. It's not that. I'm not here to tell you Jesus. It was the whole thought of it. I said, son, how do you know that? Did your mother tell you that? He says, no. Well, did you learn that in Sunday school? He says, no, sir. I said, well, how do you know such a thing? He said, I just know. That's why. I believe there's a part of me that knows. That knows what's right for me and what is not. What is good for me and what is bad. That knows exactly where to turn in times of trouble. I believe it resides in every human being. And if you don't think it resides in you, think about the last time you were in a life-threatening situation. All the stops were out. There was nothing you could do about it. Did you hear yourself say the equivalent of three words? God, help me. How do you know that? It's like a homing beacon inside. We just know, that's why. And then Jace one night laid a biggie on me. I still carry it around with me. We're sitting on the couch talking. He said, hey, Dad, why don't I be the dad for a while and you be the son? I said, well, how are we going to work that out, son? He said, it's simple. He said, I'll grow up and be the father. You grow down and be the son. The best description of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous I've heard to this day. Growing down to be a child of God. My mother's now 80. Going on 21. She's absolutely gorgeous. She and I have a love affair going. My dad's dead. My dad was the kindest, simplest, goodest man I've ever known in my life. When I was growing up in that mill town, we didn't have any money. My dad didn't talk a lot. But my dad would take me out in the woods, and all the other little boys were getting these store-bought bows and arrows and everything. You know, my dad would take me out in the woods, hand-pick a branch, carve it. Every arrow had a different design. These guys that had these store-bought things would try to trade theirs for mine. He taught me how to skip rocks across the water. Boy, I can skip some rocks. He taught me how beautiful things were without saying so. That's what I mean about kind and gentle and simple and calm. And I loved him. And he loved me. When I was 18 years old, he carried me to the bus to leave for the Air Force as an alternative to going to jail. And while he was telling me how much he loved me, he had his hand planted firmly on my butt, pushing me on that bus. <laughs> I was about to kill him with my behavior. And I had the opportunity, and I look at it as an opportunity today, was to be with my father while he died, and it was a long, long, slow, and painful process. It was cancer. And it was ugly. And I always considered my dad kind of weak. Isn't it strange how we confuse weakness with quietness? And I found out about real strength. God, what a man. And the morning before he died, he turned over to me and he said, Tommy, am I going to die? And I said, yes, sir. And soon. And I said, tell me, does that frighten you? And he said, yeah. But he said, I learned a long time ago when you're afraid, you give your fear to God and go on about your business. This is not an AA person. Sometimes we feel we've got a lock on it. And we're only given the opportunity to share what has been shared by the greatest of the spiritual teachers of mankind. And while he was looking at me, he said, son, I love you. He said, you're one of the finest men I have ever known. Same son, same father. Something changed. And it's me. Why? 
Is it because I'm smart? No. Is it because I'm special? No. It is because this program has done for me precisely what it says it would do for me in every single aspect. And if it hasn't done it yet, it's going to do it. I'm the kind of a person who has to feel good. Feeling good is not a luxury to me. It's a necessity. And I am in a program which, thanks be to God, makes me feel good, makes me, as I said, high. I am addicted to this program. Shoot me up with it every day. You cannot OD on AA. And this magnificent and wonderful Father who comes in stillness and works through surrender and paradox. Spend much time with him. Much time. Not talking. Learn how to worship. Learn how to get my mind off me and on him. Only for a few minutes a day. That's better than it's ever been before. My kids look at me now and say, Dad, you're the finest person in the whole world. And the one who used to hate his own guts replies, ain't it the truth? <laughs> and people say to me now, Tom, I love you. And instead of making some excuse and telling them why they shouldn't, I say, I know it. I know it. And do. And God, that's worth the whole ballgame. To be able to accept love. The word was on me for years, even in AA. He'll give you the shirt off his back, but don't try to give him yours. He doesn't know how to receive anything. And I didn't. And I've had to learn. It's been tripped. You want to approve of me? Go right ahead. You want to disapprove of me? Go right ahead. I'm a hell of a man. With or without either one. And I mean, I like music. I found that kind of freedom, for instance, that Chris Christopherson talked about. Freedom, he says, just another word for nothing left to lose. I believe that. I don't have to wake up each morning and plan the world's activities anymore, folks. <laughs> I ain't have to plan mine. You know, just ask God for the knowledge of his will, the power to carry it out. That's it. Get on off my butt and on my feet and get out there and live it. All the faith in the world to me doesn't mean anything unless you put feet on it. Action is the magic word. I believe that. Do it even if you do it wrong. I threw up 50 times a day or more. And it's okay. It's okay. I'm trying hard. One of my musician friends down in Rock Hill, South Carolina, is a little guy named Ed Kilburn. And he writes top 40 music to make his money. But for himself, he sings for free at any church that'll let him. He wrote this beautiful little old song that I love. And I can almost hear my three children and my mother, you know. My mother is a, a terminal Baptist, black belt. <laughs> she retired, as a matter of fact. Her last job was hostess in one of the largest Tabernacle Baptist, uh, Baptist churches in Raleigh, North Carolina, one of the largest Baptist churches in the state. Black belt Baptist, you know. And she's always asking me, what about Jesus? You know, and these kinds of things. And, and it's beyond me to explain it to her. You know, I don't even try anymore. I used to try. I don't. I just live the life. Let somebody else handle the theology. And this, this guy wrote this song, and I can hear my kids saying it to me. I have three kids, Chris, Jason, and Flappy, Francis. 
excuse me. We call it flappy because the mouth goes all the time. Beautiful kid, gorgeous. And the song goes like this, and let me share it with you, fitting them into it. Daddy, why aren't you famous? Christy? Because all of the people you see here tonight came out here to give me a hand. But their applause isn't what really matters. It's what I can feel from their heart. And if tonight I made dreamers of some who had lost them or made friends with a few who were scared, or if there's one new believer who came here a critic and I told him that somebody cared, and Christy, I always feel famous. Though I'm not seen on TV, I get all the attention my ego can handle doing this live and for free. Yeah, I do it live and free. But Daddy, why are you lonely? Oh, Flappy. Because there are a few people that I miss tonight who aren't here to give me a hand. But you know, in some ways, they're closer than the people out on my front row. And if I can, if I'm quiet, I can hear Chuck's new heart-beating rhythm and see Grumpy driving his car. And there are preachers and poets that I never met, like Bill Wilson, who hasn't gone far. So I'm alone. I'm not really lonely. I just got a group you can't see. They give me all the companionship my faith can handle. Doing this talking with me. Yeah. They do this talking. Well, Daddy, I think you're crazy. Well, Jason, that's what keeps me sane. I was born with a strange sense of humor to go with a strong sense of pain. And I found that there's nothing too serious that it can't hold its own in a joke. So I might laugh at stories about people suffering and laugh about losing my hat. Make people think I give talks without answers because I tease them and hide where they're at. But I also give talks that are simple. And a smile is the last thing you'll see on the face of this crazy old outlaw. Laughing out loud because I'm me. I laugh like this because I'm sweet. And then my mother. But Tommy, do you love Jesus? Well, mother doesn't it show. She said, I've been listening to you for an hour, and frankly, i got to say no. Because if you did, you'd be famous. Big churches and Christian TV. You'd be well, so well known that you'd never get lonely. You'd never be crazy or weird. But you got to give up making them talks without answers, and you ought to shave off that old beard. I said, well, I love you too, Mother. But you sure found it different than me. You see, I do my best. And I do it like Jesus. And he did it live and for free. Thank you.